And then I started thinking like, Harriet Tubman, what about the rest of my people? Mm. I want everybody, if that's the goal of this show, like really, I want us to self-actualize. Whether you're like myself and you've been separated for centuries from the continent, mm -hmm. or you're somebody who grew up in Africa and you just making your coin, making a name for yourself in the States. Right. Bring your resources back, back home because they are so undeserving. Welcome to Blacks into Africa, y'all. Today, today is a bit different. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing the interviewing. Simone is doing the interviewing. Yes. Uh-huh. You might know Simone from Brittany in Africa. She also has her own YouTube channel. Yes, Miss Power Trip. Miss Power Trip. <laughs> And so the purpose of this limited series is to empower, inspire, and also entertain you to Blacks It to Africa. And I wanted to create a video about myself just to give you a little introduction, who I am, why I'm an authority in this sector. However, I was taking myself too seriously. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of bloopers, a lot of fumbles, and I was like, you know what? There aren't many people that are good at talking about themselves. I'm one of those people. So let me bring in my homegirl, who is like, she she is very detail-oriented. And I was like, let me just ask Simone if she can interview me for the people and just help me tell my story. Yes, yes. So that's what we're going to do today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for coming. Yes, thank you for having me. Um, so we're here to find out about you. Yes. So why don't you introduce yourself to us? <laughs> <laughs> Who <Okay>. are you? <laughs> so my name is Tadre Delora Mornier, and I'm a native Angelino, native Californian. And I'm living my best life here in Nairobi, Kenya. I honestly feel like Moving to Nairobi, Kenya has been one of the best decisions of my life. Love it. Yeah. Love it. I'm a multi-hyphenate creative. I do lots of different things. I really just go with the flow. I go to where I'm led. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I do chiefly for income is writing. Okay. I also do a bit of modeling. I do some wardrobe styling. I've done website design, social media management. So that's what you mean when you say multi-hyphenated. Exactly. Because there's just so many things you do. Exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. Love it. So we're in Nairobi, Kenya. Yeah. What what led you here to Nairobi? Is this your the first African country you visited? Um, like for me, um, it's not the first African, but definitely the first sub-Saharan African country. And it was just a, a bit random how I got here. How did, was this your first country? Was this your introduction to Africa? No, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> I was just telling her, like, I have almost a half a century in the game. And I've been coming to Africa for more than half my life. <laughs> so my first experience in Africa, I was 18 years old. I was a university student. Okay. And um, I was a volunteer in Sheretzi refugee camp in Zimbabwe. So I was working with Mozambican refugees. Mm. Yeah. So how? So did, was that something that the school set up? Girl, it was something that pretty much I set up because okay. we talking, I was in school from undergrad 91 to 95. Okay. 
and I would walk around on campus and there were all of these posters like go um, study in Australia, study in France, study mm. in England, mm -hmm. study in Portugal. Mm -hmm. And I was waiting for the study in Africa because I was an African studies minor. Right. Okay. And it never popped up. And I found um, the International Studies Office, which was basically a closet mm. that they had turned into an office. Okay. And I walked in and there was this woman who was of color. Okay. Um, I don't remember where exactly she was from, but she just put her head down and she was like, I'm so sorry, we haven't developed a study abroad program in Africa, mm. but I'm going to work on one for you. Okay. So she had created this program for me to study abroad in Malawi. Okay. And I was ready to go. I was already studying, um, gosh, what is the language? I just remember Moni Muli Bwanji. Um, but she had me, I was already studying Cherezi. I was always studying. No, no, that's not the name of it. In Malawi? It's the um the language. I'm it just sure escaped my head, but I, I promise you I studied this language for four years. <laughs> we gotta <laughs> come back, put that down. She's gonna put that down. <laughs> oh my gosh, but I don't remember the greetings. Okay, okay. but anyway, um, I was already studying their language, okay, and so I was ready to go. Mm -hmm. And then she told me like it was off because there was some protests, there was some unrest on campus, and they were targeting international students. Okay, and I was just like, "Say what?" And I, and really I was like, "But they're not gonna come after me because I'm black." She uh, was like, "No, that you can't. It's not know. safe." So when she um kind of formed this program. You were going and other students were going? Or was just going to be It was just me. Mm, it was wow. just me. So wow. she ended up finding another program um, called Crossroads to Africa. Okay. Which is basically anybody can sign up. Right. You basically just have to pay your way there. You, you don't get a stipend. Take care you, of everything. Yeah, you have to take care of everything. But um, a lot of us convened in... Um, in New York. It was mm -hmm. my first time to New York at the age of 18 for training. And there were, we were just going all over the continent. Okay. So she found a program for me uh, through Crossroads in Africa. So I was in Zimbabwe for like three months. Girl, just moving big ass boulders from one side of the field to the next. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Pause. What what was the purpose of that? What Girl, was, what, I don't know. <laughs> now you can see me it's now. Into a construction or exactly. <laughs> Imagine like okay, this is me at forty eight. Imagine me at eighteen. I was the, like, the arms just. I was like, why? <laughs> <laughs> you just told me to move them over there. Why you got me moving them over here? Wow. It was hot. So we were. Building. So this sounds like a Karate Kid moment where like, <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> You don't understand why you're doing it, but in the end, did it come full circle? It did. I think they was keeping us busy because mm -hmm. most of us were American. Okay. And I think it was just busy work for us. And I was, was I the only, no, there were two other black volunteers okay. with me. But what I can say is we did help to build a women's resource center for the um, women refugees. And we also built fly-proof latrines. So that was kind of cool, mm -hmm. right? It was it was my first time on the continent, and I had to fetch my own water. I had to learn how to take bucket baths. 
All of that. All of that. <laughs> yes. So they had to break you in. But girl, that broke me in. And then I, uh, my second experience, I was a student at the University of Ghana. So the the international studies, uh, they they came through. Okay. So and what age was this? That was probably like the next year. Okay. Okay. Oh, actually, that's not true. It was my senior year in college, Got and it. it was me and one other guy. Shout out to Philip. He actually ended up going home like a few weeks into our experience, mm -hmm. but the University of Ghana. That semester, mm -hmm. that changed me. Wow. In what ways? Oh. Number one, I didn't want to go to law school anymore. Mm -hmm. I had applied to law school before I left the States. Right. And I just, I just saw life bigger than me. I felt like I really connected to my ancestors. I think a lot of people say that when they go to Ghana. Mm -hmm. Where my dorm was situated, right? Um, it was like near a marsh, mm. and the University of Ghana is in Legon, yeah. which is a small, I guess, a small city in Accra or a village yeah, or a neighborhood. Yeah, neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. And so what they told me is that Legon means hiding place. Mm. So when they would bring Africans from the hinterlands, right? Mm. They, to the coast mm. some of them were able to free themselves and run away and hide in these marshes wow. and the marshes like it would take me like a few seconds just to walk walk to them from my dorm wow you were that close I was that close and it just so happened that my grandmother passed while I was in school there. Mm -hmm. And as a student, I was pretty much on my own. Wasn't nobody really sending me money or paying for shit. Right. So no one paid for me to go home to bury my grandmother. So I walked to the ocean and I sat there and I swear to God, I felt her. Mm -hmm. I felt her and I felt like some of our ancestry was from there. Mm -hmm. And that I had brought her home by coming, by coming home. home. That's deep. Mm -hmm. That's deep. And you had that you felt that connection there. So strong. Wow. I felt it really, really strong. And and that's how I was able to say goodbye. Although oh. she's always with me. Yeah. Grandmothers are special. Grandmothers are special. But I've been to several African countries, still education, right? right. So, so my question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um so you said after your experience at the University of Ghana, then you didn't really want to practice law anymore or go into study law. What was your original plan with um, studying law? What did you see yourself doing? I just wanted to help people. Okay. Um, I really didn't. I was so naive and I was in such a bubble. I didn't know that I could study peace studies. Mm. You know, there are so many programs that exist now that didn't exist then right. and right. again I thought like medical school mm -hmm. doctorate in sociology mm -hmm. or law school those are my three choices so I chose law school so my focus was uh, international human rights law okay and when I came back from the University of Ghana I just looked at the world differently 
I bet. I feel like you have more culture shock coming back home than you do mm. going to the place. That has been my experience because when I go to a place, I expect it to be different. Right, right. But when I go back home, I expect things to be the same. But they can't be the same because your eyes have been opened. I, exactly. So I came yeah. home and I, like all this dead space that we don't use in front, let's say a, a corporate headquarters. Mm -hmm. It's all this beautiful green grass mm -hmm. and fountains mm -hmm. that nobody uses, yep. right? I was very aware of my consumerism, mm -hmm. you know? And I was like, I'm not shopping anymore, this, that, and the third. Of course, after several months, I, I got back into my American habits of consuming, you right. know, consuming, so. Right, right. Yeah. But it's, it's definitely, um, yeah, it's noticeable. And I think that's very very accurate when you come back it's almost like wait like you it's really compare and contrast girl yeah interesting yes and people like to people like to compare poverty as if there's a poverty olympics um but i saw a different type of poverty from the poverty i had seen in the u.s and how would you how would you characterize the differences was it the differences like in who was poor or the levels of poverty or the difference for me? Okay, in the US, the poverty is more of a mindset. Mm. And it's very systematic. But people in the hood, they have possessions. Mm -hmm. They may not be the best quality, but they have possessions. Mm -hmm. People got flat screen TVs, mm -hmm. they got Jordans, they got mm -hmm. a car. You know what I mean? Yep. There's also the violence. There's a state-sanctioned violence that we also experience. Yes. In the hood here, like in Kibera here, people don't have possessions, but they may have land back in the village. That's you know what I'm saying? True. That and they, is and they true. May, they also have a different mindset. Mm. And it's not one where you'll never get ahead, where, you, where you'll never succeed. It's not one where people walk around feeling like I'm less than because I'm less proximate to whiteness, which is a different poverty consciousness. Right, right. That's interesting. Love it. Okay, so, <laughs> <laughs> so now you are in Ghana. I'm gonna walk through the story. Oh, so okay. Ghana was the second, second Af African country you visited. Mm -hmm. And then after that, what was your next, because you've been to, how many African countries, several? really know like honestly, I'm not one of those people that count and I can't stand when people do that like I've been to 50, you know uh -huh. uh, 50 African countries but I'm considering going to this one now uh -huh. what do you it's like we need to know all of that do we oh, need to know I, you see them posts I know yeah. you see them posts just yeah. say you you want to go to Seychelles and you want some advice you ain't need to tell us girl oh. anyway um they do it too much. You do it too much. Take that off of my trophy. No, yeah, no. But I think it's it's really about the experience for me, right? So when I went to law school, because my mother refused to let me take a break between mm -hmm. undergrad and grad school, okay? Because she was like, I always wanted to go back to school, and I never did, and I'm not gonna let you do that to yourself. Mm -hmm. But I wish I had. Yeah. So I ended up going to law school, which was probably the worst three years of my life. Mm -hmm. However, in that process, where were you in law school? University of Denver. Okay. 
Okay. So I went from this very white school, which mm -hmm. is Indiana University. I think it was like 2% black people. And it's a huge school with thousands and thousands of students mm -hmm. to the University of Ghana. And I just had a transformative experience. I cut my hair off, all this stuff. Then I go from this very black African city or country to Denver. Girl in Damn. Denver in the 90s. So I was there from 95 to 98. I was just pissed that I was there. Aww. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah. then I did um, South Africa. The International Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I was an international monitor. Mm. So you, Mandela, the healing, all of that. It's all during that time. Yeah. So he right. had um, he had been released mm. um, not not long before that, and my goal was to go there and go to the hearings, document everything, and what happened is I really connected with black South Africans. Mm. Of all the Africans, right. they their history is Very most similar, similar to ours. Yes. It's one thing to be colonized, but it's a whole nother thing to be underfoot of your colonizer. All day. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's like I it was the way they planned for the demise of black people in South Africa was extremely deliberate mm -hmm. down to how they constructed their homes in mm. the townships, mm. where they put the toilets. Mm. You had these old white men of the former National Party mm -hmm. talking about how they decided to put the bathrooms outside to further dehumanize black people. And this is on record. Yeah. So when people dramatize old white men in a smoky room planning for the new world order, baby, that's not a conspiracy theory. <laughs> Thank you. They did that and they do that. I don't think people understand that. I think there's a lot of things that people can't fathom. Hmm. But you don't have to fathom it when you have history on your side. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I think there's, there are a lot of things that have happened in history where I, when I read or, you know, view, I'm just kind of like, is this? It went by accident. You know? <laughs> it's it, very deliberate. Very deliberate. People, um, I don't think a lot of people understand it because they just aren't aware. They're, a lot of people are ignorant of history. Yeah. Girl, and so I had that conversation with a family member and about just what was happening in the world, systematic, da, 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 and he mm -hmm. was just like, I can't think about that. And because it was just too much, but growing up in the U.S., mm -hmm. we are taught bootstrap, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and if you're poor, it's your fault. And I grew up believing that. Because mm -hmm. we grow up with this, like, you can accomplish anything you want to in life if you work hard enough, if you sacrifice. No, you are in poverty because that's how this shit was designed. Mm. Yeah, it, it, that's very true. I feel like, it's, you know, in U.S., that's a very, very common saying that we're taught from the time we're young. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, bootstrap mentality. You can do it, you know. 
Yes, yes, we can. <laughs> that's yes, we can. That's basically but what if you ain't got no boots, but then you got money to buy the boots, but they won't sell the boots to you. Now you got to find a leather to make mm. your boots. Like it's now you gotta go find the cow to skin the cow to get the leather what? to make the boots. It's like, come on now. <laughs> you know? And then you make the boots. And then you want to have access to the market to sell the boots, and they won't let you have access to the market. And so no, because you don't have access to the market to sell your boots to the other people that need the boots. They can't get the boots to buy the boots to pull the straps up, right? And then you decide I'm gonna sell boots to my own people since mm. I can't have access to the market, and your own people say, "Mmm, I want these boots, but I don't like them boots because, because wrong white people' boots. water is colder than our water." You know, you know that saying that we have. Right. Oh, I don't want your where your boots come from. Mm -hmm. I'd rather get my boots from Neiman's, which I had a shoe store. That's a whole nother story. I used to hear that often, like, oh, I was just at Neiman's, which is a high-end uh, department store in the States. And it's yeah. like, hmm, that mentality again. Yes. Yes. Because what happened in the US after desegregation? Mm. Our businesses closed down. That's Girl. It, took money, it took money straight out of the black community. Because when we could not, when we could not partake in their, you know, activities, restaurants, stores, we had our own. We had to have our own. We were forced to have our own. But that kept the money circulating within our community. And as soon as they said, oh, guess what? You can have all of this now. People fled to it. They couldn't wait. Couldn't wait. And it, and it was just, I, I feel like it was so psychological, just the, just the delay of that um, permission into, you know, to the access of their, of their resources, where people really felt like, oh, we're winning now. But what we lost in the long run was our economy, that black economy plummeted, plummeted after, after desegregation. To the point where so many people don't even know any black businesses, business owners, our black business districts, they suffer tremendously. Yeah, we can talk about this for hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, but it's so, it's so relative to where we are now, you know? People don't, uh, there's so many times where people want to look at, um, I'm like, well, let's start from this point right here. But you can't start from 2022. You know, without talking about 1952, it doesn't. You know, it's it's directly correlated. Ooh, and see, my mom was bought. My mom was born. Not bought. My mom was born in 1952, and I was having a conversation with her because there were a lot of traumas that I experienced as the only black girl in my schools, as the only a black family in our city, even. Wow. And I was like, well, Mom, why did you choose to send me to that particular school? Mm -hmm. Why why did you choose to make these decisions? Mm -hmm. And her response, because I was raised that if you had what the white people had, you were better off. And that just shut down the whole conversation. I didn't even have a comeback. I had nothing else to say. That was why she made those decisions mm -hmm. for yeah. me that impacted me. Okay, so at this point, you're in South Africa, yes? Mm. 
Okay, I'm in South Africa. I stayed with a colored family mm. in Mitchell's Plain in Cape Town, which is the hood hood girl. At least the part I was in. <laughs> so just for clarification, when you say colored, what do you mean? These are people who have mixed heritage uh, ancestry. So they have Afrikaner ancestry and they are also descendant of the San, the King San people. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them have some Malay ancestry, etc. Okay. But the family that I stayed with, each and every one of them looked like they were from a different part of the earth. Really? That's how mixed they are. Mm. So they, uh, pre-Mandela's release, they were considered a separate race. Mm -hmm. So when you, when she says Afrikaner, she means the, the whites, the Caucasians, yeah, the, the descendants of the Dutch, Dutch. etc. Um, and then I also stayed with a black family in Soweto. Okay. That was life transformative as well. And that also prompted me to to check my for my DNA and my heritage. Because mm -hmm. I just went outside one day, just walking around, and there was an older gentleman who was probably younger than I am now, but he was fixing his car. Okay. And he just started talking to me about his family's lineage. Mm -hmm. He told me the folkloric history, which is like, my people came over on the backs of a snake. I was like, wait, what? You I know, and, and right, I was like, I ain't got that type of history. <laughs> and then he also told me about his, um, you know, more historical uh, ancestry, which is like, we're originally from Malawi, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And as he was talking to me, like as his daughter, I was just in awe. And I was like, I don't know my family history beyond the South. Right. And it's also something that my grandparents refused to discuss with me because it was so painful. Mm -hmm. And when I would ask them, you know, you're studying about, in school, you're studying about the great black migration. Mm -hmm. And my grandparents, they did that mm -hmm. in their 20s, but they refused to discuss it with me. And they mm -hmm. would say the past is best left in the past. Mm -hmm. So I came back from SA and I was like, went to my parents and I said, hey, I want to learn more about me. If I send you this DNA test, will you take it? Right, right. And they, they wanted to know why. Mm -hmm. I think I was the only person in my family that was curious, mm -hmm. but they did. And we discovered more about ourselves. And what did you find as far as through the, um, the DNA testing? Wow, what was most interesting to me is that we didn't have as much indigenous American ancestry as we thought. Which is I very was like, funny. <laughs> I was like, somebody was lying. Somebody was lying. Yeah. Um, but what it turned out to be uh, is that there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there, okay. right? Okay. But what it turned out is that there was a great grandmother who pretended to be indigenous because she was partnered with a black man, and mm -hmm. to keep her family safe, she said that she was indigenous. When in reality, she was white. Um, so I found out that my, on my mom's side, we are Mafa mm -hmm. and the Mafa are predominantly in modern day Cameroon. Let's not get caught up on borders because we know these are new. Let's Very talk new. about the ethnic groups. And then on my dad's side, the African ancestry is Mende. 
You yeah. also back yeah. yeah, they took a lot of people from that region. Um, my dad went through a bit of an identity crisis mm -hmm. because his ancestor, he basically half and half. And that's how crazy and fucked up the racial politics is in the U.S. Because my father is 50% African and 50% European. So imagine his parents... So one of those, his grandparents are his parents. My grandparents were less than 50% African heritage, but they are black by American standards. We were just, I forget who I was talking about this with, but um, yeah, just the, 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 how you can see, you know, the, the, the blackness very easily kind of fade out of a family, you know? Like if you have, um, I think I was talking about, um, Meghan Markle, just as an example, someone who is half black, half white, right? You look at Meghan Markle's kids. Uh, where's the black? Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> not you know, not trying to put any shade on her children or anything, but I just mean visually, they could very easily pass as white children. Of course, you know, and so it's. It's even she herself in certain it's parts of Africa. Africa. Yeah, right. yeah. I'm like, they'd be like Obruni. But it's important when we have these conversations because I know that there are lighter skinned black folks who do not want to come to Africa because they don't want nobody telling them to their face that they're not black. They don't want to stand out in that way. Mm. I have family members like that. Mm. But an education needs to happen because our phenotype which is how we present physically, I think is only like 8% of our whole DNA makeup. Mm -hmm. So you can't really look at somebody mm -hmm. and be like, they're, you know, and all of these things are societal constructs anyway. True. True. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay, so after you you found these results from African ancestry, um, what did what that lead you to do? I think I just felt, felt more secure. I still haven't been to Senegal, which is where the majority of the men they are. I still haven't gone to Cameroon, but I will go. Okay. But I'm still just like, when I get there, what do I do? Do I just show, hey, like, hey, me. Yeah. <laughs> you little girl, I don't I don't know what to do, but right. maybe I'll right. just, I'll figure out a way to, to get into the culture. But I just felt, I felt more rooted. Mm. When mm -hmm. I did that. Right. And at the yeah. time, I was married. And mm -hmm. I remember saying, I'm getting ready to order these tests. You know what I'm saying? And actually, the founder of Ancestry.com, she was one of my clients. And so I was like, you want me to get you one too? He did not want to know. Mm -hmm. He did not. He, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. I think, I'm not going to speak for him. But mm -hmm. I think for a lot, of the, a lot of people of African descent, we look in the mirror and we already know that we have a lot of admixture mm. and we don't want to read on a paper that 75% of your ancestry is in Europe. 20% mm. of mine is in Europe mm. and, you know, 70% of mine sub-Saharan Africa mm -hmm. and then the rest, the other 10% is indigenous American. Okay. okay. When you get these these results, you actually have to go deeper. Because what I could have done, because I wanted to find out 
more about the indigenous. Okay. Because it is so rooted in our culture, in our cuisine, et cetera, et cetera, whether we know it or not. When you, when you say indigenous, do you mean indigenous? American. American, really? I yeah. wanted, yeah, I had this African-American cookbook, girl, and it was more text than it was pictures. Mm -hmm. And they was breaking down this the food that we eat on a regular and how much indigenous uh, cuisine is just wrapped up in there, indigenous ingredients, etc. Okay. And let's not forget that when we ran away, mm -hmm. some indigenous groups mm -hmm. sheltered us. Yes. Right? Yeah. So anyway, um, I just wanted to, to, so basically when you do that test, mm -hmm. then you have to go to another DNA company to find out which tribes within the U.S. you might be a member of. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. So I know they have that, that kind of test for indigenous or Native American. Because they want to know too. I, I can see. They want to yeah. know too. And then also, I'm very, and I said the words they, because I know I have this ancestry, but I don't live my life as an indigenous woman. Right. So I'm very conscious of how I rock certain things. Because I'm not trying to appropriate either. I think that's very wise and respectful. Yeah. Because I feel like there are a lot of, you know, sometimes you will see celebrities um, take their, I mean, white celebrities, um, well, what they believe all their lives, they're white, completely 100% white. Then they might take an ancestry test and find out they are 4% African. And they will take that and run with it. Don't do that. That to me, that's that's disrespectful, you know. Because I'm sorry, just because you found out today as a you know 30 year old woman that you're four percent African doesn't mean you get to start saying the N word. Doesn't mean you get to start appropriating our culture, you know, a culture that you haven't lived in, taken a part of. So I feel like that's very respectful for you to be yeah. conscious of that. Cause you don't live your you don't live your life you, you're not black presenting you're right. white presenting right I'm very black presenting and it's interesting to have this conversation because most people will be like but you look like a regular black girl like you look like us the interesting thing about being in East Africa well Africa period mm -hmm. people don't know their history mm -hmm. so you walking around not realizing that you have ancestors from Persia and India and the Mediterranean because they're not taught their history. Right. That's why I look like a regular black girl to you because I'm walking around with other black girls who have similar ancestry right. but don't know it. Right, right, that's very true. We are such a mix, you know, when we especially talk about coming over to to the West, to the US and, and the Americas in general, it's like, we've been so mixed at this point. It's like, yeah, I, I don't think people really know. Even they don't think about it. Even, I'm talking Africans too, because I, I kind of blend in here in Kenya. And if you, I've watched Kenyan ancestry reveals, mm -hmm. I've watched Ethiopian ancestry reveals on YouTube. Everybody be so shocked. And I'm like, why? Why they don't, don't, know, about they the don't know their history? They don't know about the the patterns of you know, like you know, the Nile, the Nile people were like, okay, well, this is what you follow. You came down from here. You're all spread out through these nations. It's like even that whole Afro Asiatic. Mm. 
Now there, yeah. That a lot of what you find in Madagascar and all of that, like we, those of us who are, who do have Mongolian, because that's what it registers as mm -hmm. on your DNA. We're Afro-Asiatic people. And to be honest, like I'm, don't get it twisted. I'm very proud of my lineage. I'm very proud that we made it through mm -hmm. and are still making it through. And we are exceptions. I don't know if another people could have endured what we have endured. I doubt it. However, I don't like the term black mm. as a defining point because I think what it does is it, it diminishes who we are. So what, so tell me, tell me about that. That's interesting because I feel like I've always looked at the term black as unifying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, only because of our history, yes, we're definitely of African descent, but I feel like from from Africa we have been dispersed to so many places to where we have people that they they don't consider themselves African. They consider themselves British or Caribbean or American. Mm -hmm. So, but I feel like the thing that we all have that unites us is our blackness. Mm -hmm. When I when I think of blackness, I think of melanin. Yeah. So I don't. I always thought of it as unifying. So tell me why you think of it. Um, you why, why you don't like that term? It is that. It is that. And I do want you to call me black. I do want you to call me a black girl. I think you'll find that I can be very hypocritical or multi-dimensional in my thinking. Mm. What I will say about it is when they named us, mm. that's what they named us. Right. Black, Negro, Niger, N-I-G-E-R, which some say the word, that's where the word nigger comes from um, in terms of the what's it mm -hmm. called? Ep um, etymology. Etymology, yeah. Um, but we were, we're so much more mm -hmm. than just a color. Right. So then it was like, we, then they called us colored. My grandmother's generation, we were colored mm -hmm. and to call them black was an insult. And then, you know, in the late sixties and seventies, it was just like black power. Black was, yes. Mm -hmm. And I, I like that evolution. Mm -hmm. Though the reality is that we have, we're more than just that. Yeah. We're like, we're so many different African tribes within us. Very true. Okay. One of my friends, she said that her father would call us super Africans mm. because Mickey, Mickey's dad. Oh. He called us super Africans because we do have, like, we have all of these different tribes within right, us. Right. And then. That's so true. Right? Yeah. And then it's like when white people call us black, mm -hmm. they're also denying our European heritage because the more, once you acknowledge that we have European heritage, that means you have to, have to give us access mm -hmm. to what you have. Mm -hmm. That's true. And then there's the indigenous and the Asian that some people have as well. Mm -hmm. For me, the indigenous, and I'm just like, people out here getting money. Maybe I should go and invest in an indigenous DNA test so I can see which nation I belong to and maybe I can get a check too. I mean, yeah, I think you should run us all our money. 
from whichever way it cometh, okay? I do wanna, okay, segue into, speaking of black, your channel is Blacksit to Africa. Mm -hmm. So how did that idea even come to you? And what um, what what are you really saying by Blacksit to Africa? What is what do you mean by that? Blacksit from where to Africa? You know, and how did that how did that come about? You know what? So I got laid off from my job. Mm -hmm. I don't know when, when was that? Two thousand seventeen? No, two thousand eighteen. Okay, I got laid off. No, two thousand seventeen or somewhere around there. I got laid off from my job. What job? What were you doing? Girl, I was working as an online stylist. Okay. Yeah, and I had spearheaded a new project, and one of the co-CEOs was like, uh, because of this project that you are spearheading, we're going to double our revenue. And I had, like, after years of li living in California, because mm -hmm. I moved back as an adult, mm -hmm. After years of struggling, I finally felt like I have a work home. Okay. I can thrive here. I'm accepted here. Okay. We, we know about the microaggressions that black women deal with at mm -hmm. work, right? Mm -hmm. And then they came in and told us that they was laying people off. Mm -hmm. But based on your performance, you would stay. And so I was always like a top three performer in my department. And then on top of that, I had spearheaded this new project. Okay. So I was like, I'm staying. I don't know about y'all, girl. <laughs> so when they called me into the conference room, I, girl, I grabbed my notebook and my pen. And I was like, I'm about to get a raise. I'm about to get a promotion. <laughs> and I sat down and it was like, so we're laying you off. And I looked to see if I was hearing things correctly. Because it was two people in the room. I looked at their faces. And I was laid off. Basically, I was a threat to my Chicana supervisor. Oh, yeah. And she was like, and by the way, you don't, uh, you don't follow directions well. And I was like, what? <laughs> but it was a blessing in disguise. The reason why I was struggling so much living in LA as an adult is because I wasn't meant to be there. Mm. That's basically what it was. The universe kept pushing me and pushing me and making me more and more uncomfortable. Mm. So for my birthday earlier that year, I had gone to Zanzibar mm -hmm. um, to celebrate my birthday, which means land of the blacks. Mm -hmm. And those, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. back to that term, right? Yes. Somebody else named them. I think it means land of the blacks in like either Turkish or Arabic. I can't remember which language. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, I went there and I thoroughly enjoyed myself. I bet you did. Zanzibar is beautiful, y'all. It's beautiful. <laughs> and I was like, you know, whenever you go someplace fabulous, you be like, how can I make this my everyday life? Mm -hmm. And I had tried a couple of things that didn't pan out. But when they laid me off, I was like, okay. I vacillated between being angry mm -hmm. and being hysteric like laughing hysterically i would like bust out laughing hysterically and then i'd be angry like it was like those two <laughs> you were going through it so i had called a lawyer because i was like this is my intellectual property and the lawyer was like actually no it's work property so there's nothing i could do but what they did do is they gave me a severance check okay and i had unemployment insurance okay 
and I was half-assed looking for work. I wasn't into it. I'm like, I'm going to go to another company and I'm going to experience the same thing. And, da -da -da -da. Mm. and I said, you know what? I'm leaving. Mm. I sold all my shit. I put the remainder of the stuff in my dad's garage and I took two suitcases to Zanzibar. Zanzibar was supposed to be my forever home. Mm. And a brother that I met, um, Jerome Moore, he had this show called Black Americans Making Their Mark Abroad. Mm. And so one of the questions he asked me was, did racism leave you to leave the U.S.? And my first response was no. Like, no, no, I just wanted to live on a tropical island. That's what I wanted to do. Okay. And then I stopped the camera and I thought some more. Mm. And I slept on it. And I said, no, that's exactly it. Because if I was able to self-actualize in the U.S., mm -hmm. Africa would just be a vacation, right? I wouldn't be thinking about leaving the U.S. for Africa if I was comfortable in the U.S. I think that I think that's very true for a lot of people. I think a lot of a lot of us are looking for where we can call home because we don't feel at home in the U.S. It's very difficult to feel at home in the U.S. To feel at home, to break through these glass ceilings, to be compensated fairly for your work output. You know what I mean? To, to be seen, to be heard, to be validated. To be to date. Like, dating in L.A. was probably my worst dating experiences. When mm -hmm. brothers just tell you, like, I don't date black girls. We can dance, but I don't. Yeah, that's you know, a that's a thing, people. That's a, that's thing. a thing. You know, so ultimately I was like, that's why I was looking for someplace outside of those 50 states. So mm -hmm. um as I began to think more about this, I realized you have been decompressing from your life in the US for the past six to eight months. Mm. Like there, that period was like I wasn't doing anything. That period when you were in Zanzibar, you were allowed to just. I was just be. being and exploring and decompressing, but mm. I didn't realize it until that question was asked. Mm. And then I started thinking, like Harriet Tubman, what about the rest of my people? Mm. I want everybody. That's the goal of this show, like. Really, I want us to self-actualize. Whether you're like myself and you've been separated for centuries from the continent, mm -hmm. or you're somebody who grew up in Africa and you're just making your coin, making a name for yourself in the States. Right. Bring your resources back, back. home. Because they are so undeserving. <laughs> Remember when 9-11 happened? Yes. And people was talking about banish the, the Arabs, you know, deport all the Arabs, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then I think it was a New York Times story that listed all of the investments and the money and the bonds, et cetera, that Arab nations and Arab people had put mm -hmm. into America. And if they remove those resources, our economy would crumble. <laughs> people shut up. Mm. Now, what if black people did that? 
baby we spend billions on hair products alone Lord, alone and then when you come up with a wonderful new hair gel and it makes millions who acquires you Lancome, all these other all these other black hair care brands have yeah. been acquired right yes so they know we spend money we disproportionately spend mm -hmm. and because we are a super capitalistic nation that's what talks that's what that's what hits them in the gut yeah so my thing with this with this limited series is take back your resources and bring them here i know i know even though we got 54 countries africa ain't for everybody i always say yeah when you come to Africa, you got to come with a different set of eyes. Right. It's right. a it's a whole new sensory experience. Right. But think about your legacy. And think yeah. about your legacy. Think about a vacation home. You could buy a whole island in Uganda for $10,000. By the time it's underwater, your ass will be dead. Think about when your children are tired of the rat race. Mm -hmm. Think about retirement. Think about being bicontinental. You ain't got to be here 365 days out of the year, mm -hmm. but pick a place. Right. Right. Discover. I think that's so, I, we are definitely on one accord. I feel like this should be the goal. This should be the goal. You know, um, I think you said it wonderfully. The West is not deserving they're not deserving of our years, you know, all of our years working, all of our talent, all of our taxes, all of our, of our children, of our offspring, you know, all, everything that we put into the West, whether that's U.S., USA, whether that's England, whether that's Latin America, wherever we are as descendants of Africa, I really, really believe and agree we should come back. Baby, and I, I, I mentioned something that was really mundane um, and cliche, hair products and spending. Mm. But let's talk about our inventions. Fiber optic cable? Mm. The technology for cell phones? Mm. Hold up. Mm. The filament in your light bulb? Hold up. Like, it's I could go on and on and on. Right. Right. And and people don't know. The black people themselves don't even know. But our, we, we're just so innovative that the inventions keep coming. The inventions keep coming. You know, it's it's crazy. We, and all of those inventions are ticked under America. You know, those inventions that, that we were speaking of, at least, those, those new things that are helping us into this new information age. Checkbox for America. Just making more money for, for already, already wealthy white people. I think about the sports and entertainment that needs yeah. to come here. Why NBA? You know what I mean? They, they do have NBA Africa, but you know, these people, we have enough wealth to where we can start our own leagues here. Let them tune in to an African broadcast network to get their NBA fix. And it's so interesting because whenever, if you Google Africans who left America and came back to Africa, right? they poo-poo all over it. Hmm. These media outlets 
they talk about all the failures and the disease and the wars and the what, what, what. Because they don't want us to leave. It's a very abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. So they mistreat you. Right. But when you try to leave, oh, no, can't nobody else have you. I'd rather kill you before you leave and go be with somebody else. And that's what they're doing. And so even when the whole DNA uh, test like that was like super popular at some point, right. you had these major American media outlets that were poo pooing all over it finding people to discredit and this, that, and the third. Right. And it's because they don't want you to leave because they know how valuable you are. It's like it's like an abusive relationship. I know so. you my right hand, mm -hmm. but you better not leave. Hmm. Even though I abuse you. Yeah. So yeah. We can we can just look at there's a lot of things where I'm always like, we don't even need to talk about our opinion. We can just look at the facts. We can look at the facts. We can go straight to the numbers and see how valuable we are in America. You know, so and as African Americans, we're speaking about America specifically, but I, I mean throughout the diaspora. We are so valuable. We are putting so much money into these different economies. You know, and, and people will always say, you know, well, Africa has some work here, work there. Okay, that's that's fine. Why aren't we, we're investing in America. We are investing money to get that work done in America. Why can't we invest here and get the work done here that needs to be done? I, I don't I don't see why. I, I feel like this is the move. This really is the move. What she says about legacy. Think about your legacy. We have been complaining about, I'm telling you, the same things that my grandparents, our grandparents complained about in, in the U.S., are the same things we're complaining about now. Baby, don't be sitting around waiting for no reparations because I'm very clear on the fact that we're just not going to get them. Every other ethnic group in the U.S. has gotten them. The indigenous, the Japanese, uh, we can name some more. Mm -hmm. they, they not. <laughs> Could you imagine all the white folks coming out the woodwork? I got 4%. Oh, my God. I'm yeah, you're not going to get the reparations and people of African descent all over the world suffer. Of course, there are exceptions, right? In Asia, you've got people of African descent been there for hundreds and thousands of years. In Latin America, they're at the bottom, mm -hmm. you know, and like I said, they're not they're not deserving. But whenever they want to highlight um, a cultural phenomenon or exception they always go to the black people people that have the african ancestry i was watching this show on netflix street food mm. and they have um they have a series for each region okay. of the world when they got to latin america okay they were just talking about oh this is what the italians brought and da 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 and then but who they focused on the, the black Brazilian woman, mm. right? Um, the black Colombian woman mm. and her food and her cuisine and that mix of the African and the black and the Spanish, et cetera, et cetera. But who was telling their story was some white expert in the cuisine for that country. And I was, I was just feeling a type of way about that. As you should. As you <laughs> should. You know, it's like, okay, we can go through the struggles 
go through the experiences, live the story, but we can't tell our own stories? This is a very common thread. You see it all throughout media, you know, whether it's do documentary like that, whether it's news, film, we are not the ones telling our own story. That has to change. Like that needs to change. And the other thing too, like coming back now in 2022 will be very different than coming back in the 70s, the 80s, the 60s, because Africans have been going to the global north mm -hmm. for a long time. And so I have some friends whose parents came to the U.S. to be educated mm -hmm. in the 60s. Mm -hmm. So to go back to their home countries, their passport countries mm -hmm. in the 60s is a very different thing. The yes. infrastructure wasn't there. The yeah. industries were not there. Specifically thinking about Kenya, mm -hmm. we have industry here mm -hmm. for a very long time and still in, in many countries in Africa. The, the issue that kept us in that colonized chokehold mm -hmm. was that our resources were being taken and manufactured in Europe and then the end products sold back to us at a lower quality, high price. Right. But here, there's less of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even if we talk about 20 years ago, um, we have a friend, Rita, who um, she also has a channel. Um, called TIA Marketplace. Oh. 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 Friend, she remembered that channel, girl. TIA Marketplace, yes. Um, but yes, she was saying, because she um, is of Kenyan descent, and so she's been coming here, and she's, she's half Kenyan, and she's been coming here since she was a child. You know, um, grew up in the U.S., but she's been coming here her whole life because her mother is Kenyan. And yes, she was even saying 20 years ago, if you look at Kenya 20 years ago, it was nothing like it is today. You know, so just think about some of these people that we know in the States where their parents left in the 60s and 70s. I mean, Africa is so different <laughs> in, you know, 2020 yeah. from going back, backtracking yeah. to 1970, 1960, 1980. Very, very much so. So we much have technology here that can support a business. Don't be coming in here looking for no job, baby. You know what I'm saying? Unless you got some family connections, really. Mm -hmm. um, but start an enterprise. I can tell you, I lived in Uganda for two years in mm -hmm. Kampala. Mm -hmm. How was Coming, that? It was, it was also life transformative. I loved living there. For me, the best thing about Uganda is the people. Mm -hmm. um, finding your tribe as an adult. Typically, you do that through your coworkers. You go to work every True. day. You bond with a few people. True. It's who you're around the most. Yeah, but when you don't, like I work from home and I work for SMEs in the U.S. I just be in here. What are SMEs? Uh, small to medium-sized enterprises. Okay. And um, so I'm like, I'm not meeting people. But in Uganda, stop. You can be at a bar and people be like, okay. Well, how about we get together tomorrow? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I would like, love that. I you know, how, that. Like, you can't be by yourself in Uganda unless you just want to be by yourself. And even then, people be like, well, aren't you lonely? Oh. <laughs> but one of the things that really struck me mm -hmm. was how many production companies there were in Kampala owned by young black men. Mm. 
Also, what struck me was like, if I hire a photographer, if I hire a videographer, mm -hmm. he got good ass equipment. He got a lot of equipment and he bringing assistance. You wow. know what I'm saying? Okay. And coming from LA where both of my parents worked in Hollywood, where I was trying to produce my show off the beaten path in LA and how expensive it was. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I can't hire black people. Like, I wasn't able to get into that click. I'm not saying that they're not there, but what I'm saying is these production companies and these professional professionals in the media and entertainment realm, right. they are in abundance here. Right, right. So my girlfriend has been trying to produce this reality TV series in between working a nine to five, a very demanding nine to five, where she works for like a, a celebrity manager. Okay. Who manages big talent? Okay, and so she's been trying to produce this series mm -hmm. and hasn't been able to because of the lack of resources, whether it be time and money. And I was like, I think you can produce it here because the technology is here, it's available. I was paying a woman $50 per show to do my editing. Where in Kampala. Y'all hear that? <laughs> you know, and what would that cost? So, for comparison, what would that cost in LA, in Hollywood? Oh my God, thousands! Wow. So there, there are resources here. Industry is here, um, and it seems like people just don't know it. For whatever industry that you're in, mm -hmm. you know, even if you have to build it, mm -hmm. right, there are people that here that can support it. It's interesting because I've heard people say, well, I sell this very expensive product mm -hmm. and Africans can't afford it. And I wrote back, I said, you need to keep in mind that wealthy Africans are stupid rich. You know what I'm saying? Another like, level, another level rich. Stupid rich. And it's not just a handful. It right. really isn't. And even if it was just a handful, they would buy you up. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Because some of these people, their bank accounts, their offshore accounts is what their national GDP should be. And that's, we don't even want to go there. But I had this idea to do a show about international travel and fashion. Mm. It's called Off the Beaten Path. Okay. It's also um, on my YouTube channel, different playlists. And, you know, essentially the goal was to travel around the world and interview different designers about their process, the studios, etc. Because I'm somebody who likes to understand processes. Okay. But it was supposed to be like, what was Anthony Bourdain's show called? Oh, Anthony Bourdain. I forgive no me. reservations. That yes, it was supposed yes. to be the no reservations of fashion to where it would be co-hosted by the designer. Okay, show us into your world, your favorite restaurants, your favorite places to be, blah blah blah. And so I produced this myself. I yes. funded this myself. Wow. But doing it in California, Lord, I, I look, it was cost prohibitive. And so my half sister had given me the contacts of like her former boyfriend had some friends who had just graduated from film school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so they should have been cheap, right? Right. 
When I got that quote, I was like, when am I going to be able to do this? Wow. I can't pay rent and live and also finance this project. Wow. So when I got to Zanzibar, mm -hmm. I was like, I could do this wow. here. However, what I will say, Zanzibar, baby, that's that's an economy where you you are building things from the ground up. Okay. I wasn't able to do the show in Zanzibar because it was like one dude who was a videographer and he was targeting foreigners and his prices was more expensive than in the U.S. Wow. But I was able to go to Kampala. Right. I am able to do things here in Kenya. Right. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. The talent is here. And there's competition. So I'm not dealing so with one dude. That price you down. know? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it, there's there's so many countries here. You know? So when people talk about Africa as a monolith, it, it doesn't apply. You know? I hear people ask me that. Well, um, is, there, is there this in Africa? Or is there... Um, how is the weather in Africa? And it's like, if you can't, you, this, is, this is not a city. You know, Africa is a continent. It's very diverse when it comes to things like businesses that you're, that you're able to, to start in the place, when it comes to climate, when it comes to resources, when it comes to culture. So I think we have to kind of remember that coming from the West, where it's, it's, Africa is not a country, it's not a city. And a lot of times people think of it Kind of the, even smaller than the country, the people think of it like, oh, okay, well, where you're at, right? You're there. You're in Africa. Like it's a, like it's a neighborhood. It's not. There's so many things that are here. You've been to so many countries, and I feel like some of the things you know about um, when it comes to just production and when it comes to that niche, it's very specialized. You know, a lot of people don't have that information. So you know, I feel like you're really an expert when it comes to Africa. Because you have you, she's done so many things here on the continent in so many different countries and so many different spaces. It really makes you like you're like a consultant, you know. <laughs> like what do what you need to know, you know, we can find out from her. It's like, Thank I, you. Yes, you have a lot of expertise. Like she has expertise in in the continent as a whole, and not just talking about one city and in one country. She's been all over, and she's been all over making moves, doing things, starting businesses. So th these are these are things that a lot of people from the West were interested in prior to our coming over here, you know? So she's a very good resource to have. Thank you. Um, one of the biggest mistakes I've made about my concept of Africa is thinking like these countries are states. Mm. You know, I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. Zimbabwe, or no, it wasn't. I had been to South Africa, mm -hmm. and then I was actually uh, working for USAID and the Peace Corps in Namibia, and I had never been to Namibia, but I had been to South Africa. So I was like, I've been oh, to Zimbabwe, okay. I've been to South Africa, Namibia got to be like the No. They're right there. They're right you next to each other. not make that mistake. Yeah. If they right next door to each other, that doesn't mean that they are similar. Mm -hmm. Each country has its own flavor and culture, etc. Mm -hmm. But I will also say that I have a minor in African studies. Four years. Mm -hmm. I learned more about Africa in the first month of 
being in Zimbabwe and Uganda than I did in the four, four years, years. That I studied. In fact, I will say that the education was so subpar. Indiana University at the time had the number one African studies department. I ain't had no black teachers except for my Chichewa. It came to me. Oh, my Chichewa teacher from Malawi. Yes, it's one of the national languages of Malawi. He was a grad student and he was just teaching his language. Right, right. right. Okay. Yeah, you, you really need somebody who's on the ground and who's lived it. I see there's a number of people on social media who have um, shows and podcasts about black sitting, but they ain't never been. Like they don't live, I'm like, I don't really get, like, oh, my plan is to be here in five years. But in the meantime, I'm gonna have guests on who wanna go, guests who are there. No. And you also want to. Yeah. That's 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 very interesting. That's just you know to me that's like someone that's like a, a man who that's that's like a, a man who's a gynecologist mm. trying to tell trying to tell me about having Your a menstrual cycle. That too, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but. It's like we, we're going to bring this expert. You know, he's a female body expert. We're gonna, he's going to tell you about how your period's going to feel. Really? It, but is he? Is he? What is he going to tell me? You know, there's there's a difference between learning something and experiencing it. There just there's just it. There, books can teach you a lot, but books can never experience anything for you. Like it, 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 they can't. You know, they can't. It's a different type of learning. It's a different type of learning. And it's different to have Africa in your body, you know, to walk, to be in Africa and learn what you know from knowing it, not reading it. And a lot of people don't, yeah, apparently don't get that because they, they really are. There, there are a lot of people who believe they know something that they've read, right. you know, that's not knowing. Um, the experience is key. Experience is key, for sure. The other interesting thing I will say, just from a global spiritual perspective, is that you're going to get what you're going to get. Meaning, my experience is very different from yours. I used to get kind of bent out of shape when I, like, let's say I was in Zanzibar for <laughs> a year. And then I would meet these travelers who were like, oh, we've just been here for a couple of weeks and they've done and seen and experienced things that I hadn't. Mm. I'm like, well, I need to do those things, right? But actually, they experienced what they needed to experience mm. for their growth, for their development, mm -hmm. according to their interests. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting what I need to get for my journey and my path. Right. That's very true. And I honestly, I do feel like because I'm pulled to countries, I don't necessarily look on a map and say, boom, I want to go there. I'm pulled energetically. Uh, it's something that I'm not conscious of, but I go. I get this voice, go here, go here. Okay, I'm going. I'm going to listen. I'm going to go. Mm -hmm. I think it's my ancestors talking to me. And I think oftentimes it is. I, I um, you know, I, I feel like we can't discredit the, the spirit world. 
Mm. You know, we are, at the end of the day, we are energy. We are vessels of energy. Um, energy cannot be created or destroyed. So they are with us. That's how much yes. what I believe, point blank period. Our, those who came before us are, are with us now. It's interesting how people have such a difficult time conceptualizing that these things that exist that are not seen. Mm -hmm. However, you believe in your Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. You believe in your Bluetooth. Lord. And you can't see none of that. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? I, I, just, read, <laughs> I just read a post the, the other day that said um, um, you believe in um, you, you believe in um, what's his name? Thor. The, the Marvel character. You believe in Thor but you don't, don't believe in Shango. <laughs> you know? Which is, which is the, for those of you who don't know, which was a, a, a West African Nigerian Orisha. Mm -hmm. And it, they said something like, um, you believe in the Little Mermaid, but you don't believe in Oshun. I was like, you know, just a different, different, when something has a Western spin on it, it becomes You palatable. all in. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing for me. Perhaps I'm missing out on some great media some great movies some great shows but i determined several years ago i don't even know when it was i made this decision but mm -hmm. i determined i'm not watching no more white media mm -hmm. what's these shows that got black people in chokeholds about the um the european what renaissance it was like people was loving it what it what um oh not a real chokehold like, Girl, that's I a real chokehold. I said, where, where are they got some, <laughs> some chokeholds? All right, now. <laughs> no, it was like so many shows that I see people have really, really bought into, and it's more about the glorification of white people, what white people think right. Europe was like, you know, before, <laughs> what it was oh. like before they became developed. And it's, I'm like, that's not what it was like. I forget the names of these shows because I don't watch them. But they're series. They're series that dramatize life in Europe uh, for the, the royalty, etc. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just like, I can't because I grew up watching these shows. And I grew up at a time where there were very few black people on television. Right. And I'm like, I that has forced me to seek out other outlets like Quayle TV. Mm. My show is on Quayle TV off the beaten path, which basically houses all of this black content from the continent and the diaspora. And it's the number five streaming service in the world, right, right underneath HBO Max. Wow. And this sister, Deshauna Spencer, who's African-American, who launched this app, Okay, this platform, zero funding. Wow. How are you ranked number five and they and they won't fund you? This is by design. Mm. They don't want our stories to be out there. They really don't. They do not. And so I was in Kampala and I met this Ugandan sister who had worked in Hollywood and she was like, yeah, a Netflix exec, exec came and he was telling me they want more stories from Africa because the Black American story is played. And I was like, the stories that they want to tell. Why is P-Valley, which stands for Pussy Valley, mm -hmm. why 
Why is it now one of the best shows on TV? They love to see black women acting a fool. They love to see a certain type of hood. The show is so I'm about... Gonna, I'm going to take... Can you tell us about the show? It's called P-Valley, which stands for Pussy Valley. Okay. And it basically... I, I know someone who, who writes on the show. Okay. So it's basically about exotic dancers and what they deal with in that lifestyle at the strip club. Okay. And that's supposed you to be see? our and that and that's then, supposed to be our, you know, that's generalized to, experience or that's crazy. That's the but see that is the messaging that they want to put out. And I'm and I am very for representation. I'm very for representation, right? Not to say that we all need to be Cosby. <laughs> right, no, that's not, yeah. I don't think, <laughs> we don't all need, you know, little house here with three kids. That, that's not what I'm saying. But I do definitely think that there is an agenda. There's definitely There's an agenda. There's always an agenda. Yes. So, you know, when we can get stories like that out, but we can't get stories of, you know, just... um you know, a, a quirky black girl trying to make it. When we, when I look at um, Issa Rae's story and how she had to fight to get her her writing in the media, it's like, wow, why is it so difficult? But we, can, I can bring you a story about ratchetness, and it's everybody like, all in, everybody yes. all in, and then also out that shapes how we are perceived in the world because I can't tell Very you how many so. times. I've been to where there was Ghana or Uganda and people are just like, okay, well, what tribe are you? Like, that's, I don't get that question here in Kenya, but in Uganda, I got I the do. question all the, really, what tribe are you? Yep. There, or if you can see what tribe are you are, okay, like, if I say, well, I'm African-American, then it's like, um, but where are you from? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting, the... Yeah, it, it's 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 like um, the concept, the fact that we were taken from Africa before there were co countries. These countries that we have now, they're quite new. You know, mm -hmm. there was no Nigeria, there was no Kenya, there was no no Togo when when we were taken. There were kingdoms. So that concept is it's just. Yeah, I think it's lost on a lot of people because I definitely I'm getting the either what tribe are you or what what where are you from originally where are you and it's but like, where what what language do your grandparents speak like I would I, get that a lot in Namibia and um, but I was in Namibia a long time ago. However, my point is this: what I tell people is that I am a descendant of those who were stolen because don't nobody want to talk about slavery mm -hmm. <laughs> because. Typically, the Africans you talking to, their ancestors had a hand in that. It's a very uncomfortable topic that typically shuts things down. But what I was saying about perception, so then once they realize, oh, okay, you one of them, you like P. Diddy and, and Beyonce. Who, yeah, when you okay. one of them, they say, oh, you are nigga. That means you are nigga. And now you gotta, now you gotta learn people. That's now very, you gotta very that. <laughs> yes, that is true. It's true. It's like it's like oh, when once that connection is made, they go straight to oh, oh I nigga. saw I saw boys in the hood. Oh, okay, I saw this. So it's like 
It, yes, it's the, there's a very specific correlation between us being African American and these stories that are portrayed in the media because a lot of times that's their only interaction with African Americans. You know, it's through through the television. And then not only that, like the media that is exported and what people tap into sometimes can be really odd. Hmm. Like my neighbor in Kampala, he would pull up and he would be blasting his little podcast. Mm -hmm. And he only listened to conservative white American podcasts. Hmm. Middle class Ugandan professional man. And I was like, talk to me about this. And he was kind to me, you uh -huh. know, and he would come and sit and we might smoke a little bit, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And Based on that, that he was consuming every day, right? Black people were lazy. Black people are always complaining. Black, just, I was just like, oh my God. You know what I'm saying? And he just had, like, talking to him was like talking to Rush Limbaugh. Wow. And so my homie, who is Ugandan descent, who grew up, I think he was born as well in London, was sitting there with us one day. And he was just like, he will never understand. He will never understand. Don't even try to correct him, talk to him about that. But why never? Why never? Why couldn't he be educated? He was like, he got to go there to experience it. Mm. And see, a first generation African, you'd be able to, I mean, like your parents would be able to hold on. Mm -hmm. That next generation, baby. They are perceived as us and they are us. You know, it, it's a it's a different mindset once you become indoctrinated in whiteness. It happens in school, it happens in the media. Yep. It shapes how you think and how you perceive yourself. Yep. And so once you're once you're told repeatedly in multiple ways, you ain't shit. Then you have to be, in order to survive, in order for us to survive that mm -hmm. and come out balanced, same people, mm -hmm. you and I have had to actively fight that narrative. Mm -hmm. To this day, I walk around my house and I think certain things in regards to colorism, attractiveness, violence, and I had to tell you, where the fuck did that come from? No, I have to correct myself. I was walking down the street mm. in Kampala and I saw a group of young boys walking and they had on like the basketball jerseys, whatever. Mm -hmm. Something inside of me rose up and said, danger. Really? Across the street. Really? It's my American socialization. These boys wouldn't even think about me. Wow. And I was like, Tanja, where the fuck did that come from? Wow. I went to the Arboretum mm -hmm. near my house here in Nairobi. Mm -hmm. You go on Saturday, Sunday, it's full of black people mm -hmm. being, just living their lives. Yes. Whether they praying, yep. whether they playing games, whether it's lovers, mm -hmm. canoodling, whatever mm -hmm. it is they doing, or a little conference, whatever. Yep. But it's full of black people. Taking photos, kids. For weddings. Yep. And it dawned on me. I said, ooh, and it's not a problem. No. There's no police. 
-hmm. There's no Karens. Ain't nobody told us to shut up. Mm -hmm. Y'all making too much noise. Nobody turn, told you to turn your music down. Ain't nobody. nobody. Yes. Yeah. And that even when we when, even when we are in small uh, groups, we get that. You yeah. go to a restaurant and you and you say something funny, and I'm kicking. Oh, you get the looks. You're mm -hmm. too loud. Mm -hmm. Girl, it's so it's unlearning. Yeah. And you don't realize it until you get out. Like they say, you cannot heal from trauma until the trauma stops. Yeah. And you don't re and we don't realize how we've had to psychologically right. and physically protect ourselves from the daily onslaughts of micro macroaggressions. Very true. I, I feel like it's constant. That's in, in America, I feel, in the U.S., I feel like it's just a constant poke. You know, there's there's constant microaggressions and macroaggressions, but it's it's never ending. You know, it's like you, you don't get to rest. You know, like you really don't get to rest. That's, that's how I felt there. Um, yep, that's how I felt. It's like there's no, it's not to say, not to take away from the happiness I had in the U.S., but it definitely was a constant. It, it's like if I'm, um, you know, let me see. If you're, if if I were walking down the street in the rain, mm -hmm. I could be having fun. Mm -hmm. You know, I could I could be walking with my friends. You know, or we could be kicking. But my my umbrella is always up. I, I I'm always holding on to something to, you know, keep that rain off of me. I could be walking through the park, you know. I could, I could be in moments of joy for sure. Okay. Um, I definitely, I would say that yes, I, I'm a joyful person in general. Yes. I definitely had happiness. Yeah. I was living my life, but that umbrella was always up to keep that rain off of me. It's like this arm was never at rest. There was always, you know, you always have to keep your guard up. I think that's very interesting because you and I both present as bootlegs. Mm. We, you and I, if you know, you know. You and I present as acceptable blacks where they're not really afraid. You know, when they see the natural hair and we're earthy and we're joyful and we laugh. You know, we don't have we don't have the emblems of what white people, let's just say others, would consider to be ghetto black. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're we're hired easily. People yeah. are comfortable with us. Yes. And yet and still yeah. acceptable names. We yeah. speak a certain way. Yeah. Especially we know how to code switch. Yeah. But I don't code switch anymore. And we're educated women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet you're still walking around with your umbrella. Yes. Yes, because I mean, because the rain is always coming down. The rain is, it's just like, wow, okay, you know. Sometimes I, I feel like in America, I, I think I kind of felt like, okay, there was a point in my life where I, I kind of had to be like, um, I can't wait for the rain to stop. I, ha I have to live my life. I have to find joy because if I wait for the rain to stop, I'm not going to get to play outside, you know. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you just gotta go out in the rain. And I had to navigate that in my youth, how to just kind of, all right, well, 
this and this and that is happening, but I'm going to enjoy while those things are happening. So that's actually profound. It took me a while to get it. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to go back to that mm -hmm. because that was profound. The rain never stops. Mm -hmm. And the rain is a euphemism for the trauma and the aggressions and the violence. Mm -hmm. And so you, you figured out how to play in the rain. Yep. That's what I had That's to That's our existence in America. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yep. That, that's it. That's why our telomeres are shorter. Mm -hmm. Right? Our telomeres are the building blocks for DNA. And what science has shown us is that regardless of the things that we have acquired, mm -hmm. regardless of the, the notoriety, mm -hmm. I think about when we were talking about production, mm -hmm. the brother that directed Michael Singleton. Oh. It's not a coincidence that he was very unhealthy and he died early. He did. I think like we have, we are exceptional and we've been able to push through mm -hmm. in the rain. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, this goes back to one of my previous guests, Eva Toje, who is a Londoner, born and raised Nigerian heritage. She was like, who want to do that? I want the soft life. Yeah. Bar property in Kenya. You know? She, I want, I want the soft life. Of course, there's exceptional, exceptional. What's the word? I'm tired of There's um, exceptions, exceptions, exceptionalism, right? Mm -hmm. But who want to do all of that? Yeah. I, I remember um, the first time, the first stamp in my passport um, was going to Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago. Um, um, Love, love, love. It always had a special place in my heart because it was that first. Mm. Um, and I remember just, I had never been in a place that, that black. In a, in a, in a, <laughs> you know? Um, and you from the South Side. No, no, I'm from Aurora. Well, Aurora. Oh, my daddy, my okay, sister's from yeah. South Side, but I'm from Aurora, Illinois, with, um, a suburb of Chicago. Mm. Um, but even, even where, you know, where I grew up, it was, it was very diverse. You know, it was very diverse. It was so different from when I went to to university at, at an HBCU at Granville State University, but it was in Louisiana mm. and it was very different. I, I didn't really, it put a completely different spin on racism when I got to the South, Okay, you know, very different. So, um, and then from Louisiana, I went to Atlanta. And Atlanta is another very black city, but you know, there's. I feel like sometimes we have these oases and inside of the storm. And Atlanta is definitely a haven, but it's in Georgia. It's a very southern Bible Belt racist state, you know. And my HBCU itself was a wonderful haven within Louisiana, which is another very southern Bible Belt racist state. So going from those places, and when I was in it. Um, in Atlanta, the first time I had actually went to went to outside went outside of the country, went to Trinidad, and it was like amazing, amazing to me to be in a nation that was this black. You know, just I, I was just in awe, in awe, just to see all the black policemen, 
you know, um, just everyone, every, every, everywhere you went, you know, whether it was the, the store clerks, the people that ran the gas stations, police, officers, everyone. Like, it was just, it was very, very, it was epic for me. It was epic to just, and that was the first time I was like, oh, it's kind it's it's sunny out. <laughs> like it's sunny. I don't I don't have to hold this umbrella here. Mm. And it was just like wow, you know, I like this. Mm. I like this. I playing in the rain was something I managed to do, but I would rather play in the sun. <laughs> like, yeah, like I, I want to be. I want to be where I'm not an other. Can I just say this? When I was in Kampala, mm -hmm. I was supposed to be in Uganda for two to four months. Mm -hmm. Okay. And every time I got ready to leave, I got another opportunity and another and another. Mm. And they were amazing opportunities. I taught at Makara University. Where? Makara University okay. in Kampala about okay. fashion merchandising, which I had I had taught in the States as well, um, lectured. Um, but yeah, they brought me on to do that. Okay, I expect. Yes, that's awesome. I had um, styled a fashion brand in the States. I had styled people, mm -hmm. but never had a fashion brand reached out and said, we have a new collection. We would like you to come up with the concept and style our new collection for our photo shoot. Mm -hmm. And I remember calling my dad and he was like, this could be a sign. It sounds like you should stay. You're getting all these opportunities. Why don't you just stay? Wow. And so two months turned into two years. Wow. And I remember thinking to myself, is this what it's like to exist without white inferiority complex? So most people say white supremacy, but I never say that because there's no way you could feel good about yourself and want to oppress other people. Mm -hmm. It's really a I lack and limiting and inferiority complex. So I was like, wow, I've only been here for months and already people see my talent mm -hmm. and they are rewarding me with opportunities to create which is basically you're being godly in your daily existence when you mm. create. That's so true. Yes. So say that again. Yes. Yes. <laughs> say that again. When you create, and when you're able to actualize and exist from this whole soulful space, you are godly in your existence. You are literally taking nothing and making something. You are putting things into existence. You are a creator. And just imagine how we're downloading. You're downloading from a higher power. You you have this 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 voice, whether it's from your ancestors or whether it's from a higher power, and you want to actualize that because we we are here to do to create through God. Mm -hmm. But when you exist in a place that won't allow you to do that, right? That's when you die early. That's when you get disease. Mm -hmm. That's when you become angry and bitter. All the stress in your body. 
And one of the things that really struck me about Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, mm -hmm. definitely wasn't my favorite book, but one of the things that really resonated with me is she talked about the hardness mm -hmm. of the men in her family, and one uncle in particular, mm -hmm. because he was not able to live his life fully given the caste system. Mm -hmm. Africa, you don't have to do that. There's no way for me to really there's no way for me to communicate this verbally. It's something that you have to feel. But for those of us who do exist in the United States, you know, or in Europe, or even in Latin America, shit, Asia, for those of us who exist outside Africa, yeah. you know what it's like to walk into a room and people look at you as if you don't belong. Every Everybody turn to look at you. Who is that? How is she here? Mm. Who do they know? Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You know what it's like to try to explore someplace new. Maybe you get lost. Maybe you walking down the street, driving someplace you've never been. All the eyes in your car, all the eyes out the windows on you. Mm -hmm. And they size you. Is this a good black? Is this somebody that's gonna cause trouble? Typically, when you're in feminine form, you're you people don't target you in that way, mm -hmm. you know. But when you're in a male form, it's and you're amplified, black, right? It's amplified. Not to say that females also don't get targeted. We get um, targeted in a different way. Not mm -hmm. like not like I'm afraid of you, but you are a woman. I can physically overpower you. Mm -hmm. I've experienced that mm -hmm. on numerous occasions, mm -hmm. and I also know some, some females depending on. You know their their um, stature, mm. body type, where they also are, are targeted. Dang, closest proximity of, of what a man would be mm. in them. You know, um, but for always, you know, that othering, that othering. It's it's like you don't belong. You don't belong. Um, it's a very common theme. It's a very common theme, and it's just something we don't deal with here, which I I love. I love being, I love when people come up to me speaking Swahili, speaking key Swahili, you know, because they're they're like, okay, well, she might dress a little different, but she's Kenyan, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, that's nice. That's nice. It's nice when I, I can let them go to a certain point in the conversation and then I have to interject, wait. Can you say me not saying my kids why he Yes. But it's um it's lovely. It's lovely being here. It's lovely being able to be. And I love the fact that you're encouraging others to come back. Come on home, y'all. Fifty-four yes. countries to choose from. Have your pick. And I will also say that I'm available to have conversations, slide in my DMs, um, just about how to navigate it. I think one of the things we get caught up on is the logistics. Mm -hmm. I realize I'm a very free-spirited person. I really have a plan in place, and I know a lot of people are not like that. Right. So I'm open to help you plan or even put you in contact with people who can do that for you. Yes, I love it. Yes, well, it was wonderful being able to interview you, find out 
all of these little details I didn't know. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Blacks It to Africa. I hope that you were inspired, entertained, and empowered to come on back home. Please do. <laughs> Until next time. Bye.